Okay, this week I'm with Nicholas McGeehan, who's a director at Fair Square, a research organization that looks at migrant rights, predominantly across the Gulf. Nicholas, uh, great for you to join me. It's nice to be on. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for joining. Yeah, so initially I reached out thinking that we'd do a retrospective on the World Cup. I did quite a few interviews ahead of the World Cup with, with people, but obviously with the Qatari bid being confirmed for United on Friday last week, it's obviously ramped things up somewhat for listeners. So we'll touch on that and the World Cup. But I thought I'd start with, tell me about Fair Square and your role there and the kind of work you do. Sure. So we set up Fair Square in, in 2018. And before that, I'd been, a, I'd been a senior researcher at Human Rights Watch working working on the Gulf. And my counterpart had, had done the same job at, at Amnesty International. So we'd worked on Qatar, we worked on the UAE, worked on Bahrain. That was, that was my area of interest. And, and that had actually stems from a spell when I had lived in in Abu Dhabi. I lived there between 2002 and 2006. I was actually an English teacher. Okay. And I got really interested in migrant workers' rights just from seeing it up close. And I started to, I started to, to study it and got very interested in it and, and ended up taking it very seriously. So, so that's how we got to here. But yeah, it started with an actual personal experience of, of, of living in the Gulf. Yeah, it's an interesting experience. I, I've never lived in the Gulf, but I've been to most of the countries quite a lot for work reasons. Interesting experience being a, a migrant or a, I guess a, a, a Western worker there, potentially living in a compound and, uh, and all that kind of stuff. How, th how did you get interested in the migrant workers that we saw building the infrastructure for the World Cup? Well, it, it started, as I said, with this interest of this living in Abu Dhabi and just, just actually talking to the workers. I mean, I just remember there's a really interesting thing in the Gulf, like you say, you've been there. So you've seen that it's, it's like two separate societies living side by side, you've right. got the very wealthy expats and, and nationals. And then you've got this underclass who, who live beside you, but very, very separate from you, you know, and you don't really have any dealings with them in any sort of social sense. So it's quite an unnerving situation. I just started talking to workers and, and they would tell me these terrible stories of all the things that had happened to them. And I was, uh, I, I was, guess I was very naive and I couldn't quite believe what I was hearing. And so I, and, and the fact that this didn't seem to be an issue that was on the agenda of any human rights groups or wasn't written about in any newspapers, this is 20 years ago, of course. And so, yeah, I just, as I said, I started getting interested in it. I did a PhD ultimately on, on the topic and that's what led me to, to work for Human Rights Watch. And the Qatar issue, and Qatar really wasn't on the radar at all of anyone until it won the right to host this. So initially it was Dubai and Abu Dhabi that were getting criticism for the issue because they were the ones that were developing and were right. westward facing. But obviously as soon as Qatar won the right to host this, then then that completely changed and, and it became the focal point, the lightning rod for, for all the criticism on the issue. And then for the record, I mean, how, how do you fund your research? Are you a donation-based organization? Yeah, we get, we, so we either fund, we either apply directly for, for funding for specific projects from philanthropists or from funding groups, or we, we, we get money for what's called general operating support. So philanthropic groups fund our, fund our research and, and a lot of the stuff we do on sports, for example, comes, comes from that. So we get money from Open Society Foundation, we get money from Humanity United, which is a big American philanthropic group, and we have other pieces of funding from, from smaller foundations. So that's, okay. that's where our money comes from. Great. And then on to Qatar itself. It, it, it's interesting looking back at the World Cup. You wrote a piece in The Guardian just ahead of the World Cup final, I think, that said the inevitable happened and we switched our focus from the negative side of the World Cup to the football. And of course, that was always going to happen. But were you surprised at about the amount of focus 
there was, especially in the English speaking media on Qatar and human rights issues? Yes, I, I was surprised. I didn't expect that level of, of cut through. I didn't expect that level of the intensity of the criticism and the, the quarters from which it was coming. I think the moment that you actually realized just how, just how this was unprecedented, I think was when Roy Keane made the comment and, and I think it was in, in the, the ITV coverage ahead of the game when he said, you can't treat people this way. That, that was the moment I think at which we, we realized that, that something different had happened here, that the criticism that had been leveled at other tournaments ha had not reached anything, the level that it reached here. Yeah, for sure. Right. And, and why do you think that was? I, I was kind of interested in this because of course I spoke about it a lot on Twitter and the podcast and, and have uh, long-time listeners will know that we take geopolitics seriously alongside the football on, on the pod. And we've talked about Russia previously and, and obviously issues around Manchester City and, and uh, Paris Saint-Germain and latterly Newcastle. Why did it cut through this time and, and not say in Russia 2018? Yeah, it's a good question. And I think people will be studying that for some time. I mean, there was a, a quite remarkable volume of material published on Qatar by NGOs. We've been doing work on this for, for 10 years. There was, a, there was a body of literature on the abuses in Qatar that you could stack to the ceiling, I think. And, and every time that was done, journalists were writing about it and getting interested and more and more interested in it. And of course, side by side to that, what was interesting was the NGOs tended to focus on migrant workers' rights. Yes. There's a relatively small volume of criticism on the LGBT issue in relation yeah. to the World Cup. Largely because I don't think, I think a lot of the NGOs felt, I certainly felt this, was that you know, that touches on a, 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 a really tricky social and cultural issue, you could say, and it, which is not directly linked to the football. And a lot of us felt that it was going to be hard to drive change on that issue via the football, which is not to say it shouldn't have been addressed. Of course, it should yes. have been addressed and it was right for people to do so. And I think there's a lot of great work done on that. But our, our perspective was, look, the World Cup, the tournament itself is driving these other abuses. And, and those are the ones where you can actually call on FIFA and sponsors, where you have, to, to use the term, where you have stakeholders, you know, where yeah. you have people have responsibility to do something. So that was why we focused on that. I think, you know, wh wh why did it get so much criticism? I think it was the culmination as well of a cycle of deep discontent about the way the game was going. From the moment those two envelopes were pulled out of the hat, I think people have had increasingly had concerns about the way the game is going. You subsequently had the, the Blatter scandal with half of FIFA being removed. Then you had Russia 2018, which had, which had a lot of concerns and a lot of issues surrounding it as well. And then I think, but also I think what happened with Russia 2018 was post that, I think a lot of sports journalists felt that they'd essentially, they'd been had a little bit. Like the right. annexation and, and, and the invasion of Ukraine subsequent to that. I think a lot of people felt, wait a minute, did we get diddled by the Russians? Was this, was this sports washing in action? And did we have the will pulled all of, over our eyes? And I sense to some extent a feeling among the journalistic core that that wasn't going to happen again, that they weren't going to let Qatar off the hook the way that Russia perhaps had been let off the hook. So I think, I think there was multiple reasons as to why it, um, as to why it caught fire the way it did in the media. You know, I, I'd really look forward to seeing some, some sort of academic studies on that to, right, to, to yeah. answer those questions in a more scientific manner. But those are my sort of fairly initial reflections on it. Yeah, the issue of migrant workers versus other social rights, LGBTQ and, and others, is interesting because I found myself when I talked to Amnesty prior to the World Cup focusing on migrant workers 
right myself. And it, it is very tangible and visceral and, and seems more visible than, than perhaps the gay community is. And, and I think that's partly because the LGBTQ community in Qatar and other Gulf states has really literally been driven underground. And partly there's this issue of cultural relativism versus sort of fundamental human rights. And it's quite easy to say, hey, you shouldn't die on the job. And especially when, and, and it's harder to challenge some of the cultural norms. That was my sense anyway. Yeah, I, I agree. It was, it was, it was an easier, if you the whole point about Qatar is you're linking the abuses to the tournament, right? right. And, and, and there was a direct link with the migrant workers in a way that there wasn't with the LGBT issue. And, and yes, it was just a less, it was a less thorny issue to, to get around and one where you could actually see how pressure might yield very specific results. Whereas in the LGBT issue, I think what, what you ultimately what you were trying to do in that issue was build awareness of, of the repression of LGBT people in Qatar and how the, the, the impact of those laws and that repression on their lives, which is tremendous, which is so harmful when you speak to LGBT Qataris, it's just a, a dreadfully depressing and difficult situation for them. But the idea that you could drive legal reform in, in Qatar via the World Cup that would lead you down a really difficult path, which is fraught with, as you say, issues of cultural relativism, issues of Orientalism, issues of Western imperialism. These things would yep. all have been brought out as they were brought out. I mean, I don't, it, was, it was very interesting how those arguments were thrown, particularly by the Qatari PR machine and others, of course, and yes, other yes. well-intentioned actors. It wasn't, just, it wasn't just a PR machine. But yeah, it was, it was a thorny issue and it was always going to be a thorny issue. Yes, I find myself being challenged online about Western imperialism and Islamophobia. And I think there are fair challenges. And often I find myself saying when people say, hey, how, how dare you question the Qataris? You come from the UK. Just look at the history of the British Empire. And I'm like, yeah, British Empire, bad guys. I agree with this. And we can go into detail on that. And then the difference comes in, well, when it comes to Manchester United, the UK government is not trying to buy it, but it's a very relevant argument. And I think we do have to kind of say, yeah, Islamophobia in Western media is, is a real problem. And, and we have to recognize imperialism, cultural or otherwise, has a factor on how we think about things. To totally, totally. And, this, and this, is, this is exactly the argument. I think what I was saying is like the idea that there is, that there is not Islamophobic coverage within the coverage of the World Cup is preposterous because the mm -hmm. Islamophobic coverage is, is present all throughout, throughout the coverage of UK issues. Yeah. So of course it's in Qatar issues. The idea that it's driving the criticism of Qatar, that's a more dangerous argument. Yeah. And I think that's the one that the Qataris were trying to push. And I just don't think there's any evidence at all for that. And so yes, it was there, but it wasn't at the, at, at the root of it. And then the British imperialism one is, that's a really awkward one for people of certain political tendencies to cope with because it touches a nerve. And I think the simplest response to it is, well, the same people who have been criticizing the British Empire and British colonialism in Britain are the ones criticizing what's going on in Qatar. And the same well, people yeah. defending British imperialism will be the ones throwing their hands up and saying, well, we can't criticize over there because look at what we did. So yeah, it's a, it's a neat argument, but I don't think it stands up to, to scrutiny when you really probe at it. And then thinking about the legacy of the World Cup, because I think it, it might transition nicely into thinking about Manchester United. I mean, from the Qatari perspective, there was all this media criticism, but FIFA said it's the most successful World Cup ever. And from, from the regime's perspective, do they believe it was successful in, in the aims that they hoped to achieve? I would think so. Yeah, I would think that final in particular, the way that played out, 
is is probably a dream scenario for them. They couldn't really have envisaged it going any better. There were no major issues in terms of practicalities or logistics. I think that was the, that that would have been the big fear from their perspective that there would have been violence or trouble or issues at the airport or issues with accommodation. I don't think that stuff went perfectly from what I hear, but nor did it nor did it hit front page headlines, nor was right. it the sort of the fire festival that that, that some people had predicted. Um, and from their perspective, they knew they were going to get a lot of criticism, but I think they will feel that they were quite effective in pushing back at that criticism and in creating this fostering quite divisive narratives that actually deflected attention away from points on them and just, just made it a battle between, hey, you guys are throwing mud at us. Um, and, but, but, you know, well, what about your own backyard? Which is really the, the, the argument that they, they sort of propagated and, and did so quite successfully. And the legacy in terms of migrant worker rights, I mean, the, the fund that you and other NGOs had called for to, to pay the families never got off the ground, as far as I can tell. Is there any hope that increased compensation will be available? Well, it, it got close, I would say. There was a period where I think we were quite hopeful that FIFA was going to, going to agree to this, but, but then it became apparent that they weren't. And I think ultimately that comes down to the fact that, that FIFA is under the sway of Qatar and that the Qataris would have seen any fund as an implication of guilt on their part. And they'd had quite enough of accepting guilt or, 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 or being blamed for right. any sort of wrongdoings. That was quite clear in their, their approach for a while. So it, it hasn't gone anywhere. I don't think it will go anywhere. Well, that's not to say we won't keep trying, but with the spotlight gone, with fewer and fewer journalists writing and talking about this, it becomes increasingly difficult to convince FIFA to, to, to pay up for these families. So that's quite a, yeah, quite a depressing thing. And on, on labor reforms, you know, a lot of people talk about Qatar having the most impressive labor, labor reforms in the Gulf. I speak to migrant workers on the grounds, doesn't look that much different than it did. The Kafala system might be gone on, on paper, but it's still very much there in practice. Workers still can't get money back when they're not paid. Workers still get deported when they complain. So there, there have been some advancements, but you know, you're talking about a deeply entrenched and abusive system going back to colonial times. And, and to get rid of that, you need to invest tremendous amounts of political will and resources to not just change laws, but change attitudes. And, and that hasn't happened. And so moving on to, to Manchester United, I, I'm just wondering whether the decision to, and I, I'm not asking you to get inside the minds of the regime, but I'm, I'm, I'm wondering whether the perceived success of the World Cup emboldened the, uh, the Emir and the royal family to, to pursue a bid when that wouldn't have happened otherwise, or whether this might have always been in the works. That's a good question. I'm not quite sure. My sense is it's probably always been in the works, but the World Cup may have been the moment that could have turned it either way. So had they had a truly disastrous World Cup, had that narrative continued deeper into the tournament to the end of the tournament, Maybe they wouldn't have felt that this was the right thing for them to pursue, but it didn't, you know, and like you say, we had this wonderful tournament and they come out, they came out of it probably feeling quite, quite good about football and their ability to shape the narratives around it and them. So it might have been a factor. It's although, as you say, it's hard, it's hard to say. Yeah. And then to dive into the, 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 the Qatari state a little bit, I mean, this is, this is framed as a. As a private bidder, he's the son of the former prime minister and the chairman, very young chairman of the Qatari Islamic Bank. My, my sense is that the private and state entities are so intertwined, and this is such a big bid compared to the, the size of GDP of Qatar, that it, it would be impossible for this to be a fully private bid and not be endorsed. But 
But t- tell me a little bit more about how things work in Qatar and, and whether I'm wrong there. Yeah, no, I don't, I don't think you're wrong at all. I think you're absolutely correct there. Qatar's a monarchy, but it's, uh, it's run by the, the Al-Thani family um, who centralize and, and hold power. There are other influential families within Qatar, but really the Al-Thani's are ruled the roost, as it were. You know, he's not just a, a banker. He's the son of Ahmed bin Jassim Al-Thani, who was yeah. the second most powerful man in Qatar other than the Emir for, for a very long period so and was the Prime Minister. So so he's not a nobody. He's not said to be, um, based on sources in Qatar, he's not said to be quite as sharp as, as his father, who was renowned to be, to be something of a fox in, in all of his business dealings. But he's certainly close to the most powerful people in Qatar. So I would seriously doubt whether Sheikh Jassim would would be in control, would be at the wheel of Manchester United. Based on everything we've said, that, that's not going to be the case. He, he will be the front man for, for the state, really, and the man who is there to present a sort of thin separation between the Catholic state and the so-called private investor. But yeah, ultimately, it's the state. Any, any analyst, any academic who, who understands this region knows full well who's going to be in charge of this bid. I mean, I don't think... It's interesting. They, they go so far to disguise it. Yeah, they they go so far as required for the lawyers to be able to make a convincing argument should it come to it. But there's a nudge and a wink here. It's very similar to the Saudi deal in in, in Newcastle, where right there was this claim that, that the PIF, the public investment fund, was not nothing to do with the state, and and they gave the Premier League assurances, as they said that it wasn't, when everybody knew that of course it was. So if the deal yeah, was it's ahead, literally if a sovereign deal, wealth fund. It's literally, so. and he's literally the chairman of it. Exactly. So. If the deal goes ahead, I think very quickly the the debates about whether or not it's separate will just fall by the wayside and everyone will, will accept that, yeah, of course, it's the captain's good job. Yes, Pep Guardiola in his press conference the other week kind of let it slip that Abu Dhabi was in control of Manchester City when, of course, that is not the official line. It's not the line, no, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, I guess the, the interesting thing is here, you, you put out a press release not long ago calling for football authorities to, to halt this deal. I, I presume you're not very confident about that actually happening, or do you, or do you think there's a route through to demonstrating that this is not separate from a state actor? We, yeah, I think, I think there clearly is. I think if, if, if Brussels was to take this seriously, I think, I think the bid could, could be in trouble. I mean... The UEFA statutes are very clear. They call on member associations not to have dual ownership, right? Now, if that's the rule for member associations, surely it has to be the same for UEFA competitions as well, right? Now, you'd have two of the biggest clubs in Europe potentially competing in the Champions League owned by the same owners. That is a very, very serious problem. Yes, we have had issues of dual ownership before. UEFA has not taken those seriously enough. So they've, they've, they've allowed, the door is open to something like this. And, but that does not mean that those previous precedents should just allow us to say, well, that, that's fine here. No, this is a, of a different order of magnitude. The, the potential ramifications of this are far more serious. And UEFA has the ability in its statute book to, to raise an objection. And if UEFA was to say these two clubs cannot play in the Champions League together, well, that would put the bid in, in great difficulty. They're not going to do that, you would think, and not because of the Red Bull precedent, but rather because of Alexander Sheperin's very close relationship to Nasser Al-Khalifi and the Qataris mm-hmm. and, the, and the support that the Qataris gave them over the Super League issue. So again, where, where is the, the, the way that this could be blocked? Well, if the European Commission or the European Union, I think, was to say something about this and they would have a mandate to do something like this, then I think it is 
possible that that could be a way to block it. There are numerous other ways I think it could be it could be could be stopped if the British government was concerned about it and favoured the Ratcliffe bid, then they have influence, they have power. But yeah, the most obvious the most obvious route to it is simply sitting there under UEFA statutes. But but as with the Premier League owner and directors test with Newcastle, despite what it says on paper and despite that offering a clear bureau or, or sort of rules based block to it, we are not Football is not governed well. It's not governed by people who take these rules particularly seriously and they're willing to, to, to ignore them if it means money coming into the game. And I guess that's, that's the most likely result here. Yeah. I mean, obviously, I'm a Manchester United fan for 40 odd years of my life, but I, I can see very clearly how the combination of Manchester United money plus state money will skew the game in a way that has never happened before. And, and even more, I mean, United start from a higher base than Newcastle, Manchester City or Paris Saint-Germain. With all, right. with all respect to those yeah. clubs, it, yeah. it seems like a formula to say the rest of football couldn't compete. Yeah, but it's, it, 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 it's not just that. It's not just the potential for, for salaries and for the money to be completely skewed out of whack. If this goes ahead, the precedent will then be you'll have Manchester, Abu Dhabi's lawyers, Saudi Arabia lawyers will be sitting looking at this going, wait a minute, okay? Not only has Qatar now got two clubs, that means we can have two clubs. Yeah. And and, and hold on, why, why stop at two? Right. You know, let's, let's have three. And so, so once this floodgate, or sorry, once, once this precedent is set, it, it is tremendously dangerous because it is very hard to, it's, it's, it's much easier to block something from happening than to, to get these people out after they're in. Right. You know, getting them out is going to be incredibly difficult. And, I, and when I say out, I mean abusive autocrats. And yeah, so I think it, it's not just about the, the, the ability of Man United to secure the, the finances of it. It's, it's more serious than that. Yeah. And, and, and to be fair, although I think these things are, Apples and oranges to the other, only other confirmed bidder, though I think there are a couple of private equity focused American bids as well. Ineos has significant dealings in Saudi Arabia and they own two football clubs, Lausanne and Oji Nice, near to where you're based. And, and, yep. and I forget the name, I'm sorry, but and a club in, in Africa as well. So it's a multi-club model. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, it's again, hugely problematic. I mean, the reason we focus on Qatar, the reason we focus on Saudi and things is, is we're a human rights organization. So yeah. we, talk, we talk about states. There, there are organizations who should be looking at football governance more broadly and looking at the issue, the, the multi-club model, looking at the role of hedge funds and private investors and, and, and taking that issue seriously. You have this ridiculous situation, this unholy alliance between private capital and sovereign wealth whereby private capital is seeking to make money out of the game. But the only way it can really make money out of the game is by selling to sovereign wealth, right? Yeah. That's, that's how you make your money. So it's a, it's a really, it's a horrendous situation that, that English football in particular has, has got itself into. And it's happened because of a lack of regulation, a lack of governance. And I guess my hope is that this will be the moment where, where somebody at a very serious political level puts their foot down and uses the tools that they're disposable to, to stop it, right? And, and at that moment, maybe we can, <laughs> maybe we can, we can start to try and claw the game back a little bit. Yeah, there's been a white paper and quite a lot of talk about a football regulator in the UK, although I, I couldn't see a route to that regulator. I mean, it won't be in place in time for this particular bid, but, but even if it was, I couldn't really see a route to it doing that much because it'll be based on UK company law. And, and, and if it's not based on UK company law, that, is a problem and if it is you know foreign investment is 
is very much welcome in the UK. So it's 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 hard to say exactly the route to to stopping this happening. But but you're right. I, I mean, the other thing about private equity, of course, is many of those funds have sovereign wealth actors in in within them. Clear Lake, which owns Chelsea, does, for example. We don't right. talk about that because there's a there's a mask and Bowley's the front man. But but right. that's very much true there as well. It, it right. feels like the horse has bolted and there's there's nothing we can do now. Yeah, I think I, I, there's there's a there's an element of truth to that, but that but that's also a really dangerous way to go down, right? It's it's it, we are in a dire situation. It is perilous, but but the response at that is not just to throw our hands up and say, well, what can we do? I think the response then is to is to is to really gird yourself and really look for ways and means to stop it from going any further, um, because it is it. It is the next. I mean, this is this poses a really serious threat to the game as a whole, the vitality of the game as a whole, and to the clubs involved. And 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 that really has to be taken seriously by people who, if we're serious about football as a sort of as being a as having transformative potential, as serving societies, as serving communities, as serving supporters. These aren't just businesses. They're not. They're they're they're, they're institutions. They're societal institutions, and they deserve special protection. Everybody recognises that, and yet we we don't regulate them at all. You know, right. I was chatting to, to my colleague the other day and we were chatting about the Charities Commission and how, how we're like we're heavily regulated. Like It's really difficult to run an NGO. You have all sorts of things to do and all sorts of things that have to be checked. There's, there's, there's almost nothing regulating, regulating who can, who can run football clubs. It, it, it's remarkable. When you consider the yeah. political influence and, and they can have, that we've got this, to this situation, it's, it's very depressing. Well, exactly. And that, that's full circle, isn't it? It's the, it's the political influence. I, I, I think we've, I, I, the sense I got from the World Cup was that we've all become a little bit smarter about understanding what we mean when we use terms like sport washing, that actually it's not just about PR or reputation washing, but it's also about co-opting institutions. And yes. there's almost no yes. more powerful institutions than football in England. And, and it's used yes. as, and, and we should say, the, the British government is very, very effective at using the Premier League as a, as a crutch for soft power internationally itself and, and and perhaps we've got a little bit smarter about that bit understanding what's going on here and the motivations but yes yes I, not I, necessarily about how to regulate and control that yes no i, I think that's a really it's a you, you put it perfectly I, I couldn't put it better I, I think we are slowly coming around to to the political influence that, that clubs have and the political power that the owners of clubs have to let's be more specific and, and that that's also something i think you were talking earlier on about brussels and the eu what you're effectively doing is giving tremendous political influence within Europe to actors, to autocratic, abusive actors who, in the case of Qatar, are already stand accused of corrupting Europe's democratic institutions. There's right. another aspect of this which is just remarkable. Qatar is accused of paying off MEPs in Brussels to repeat and parrot Qatari narrative. You know, yep. we're talking about suitcases full of cash, for example. And yet, as that is happening, we are supposed to expect, accept assurances from the Qatari state that this bid is, is nothing to do with the state, it's just some private investors. And Brussels is sitting on its hands, watching while we potentially see the complete skewing and the, co the competitive integrity of European competition utterly soiled. It's, it's bizarre how those two things are not really being connected. Yeah, and, and it, it's very hard in, in the sort of social media age to have that kind of nuanced discussion. I mean, incredibly hard in 280 characters or two minutes on a, on a news item to do that. And so I think yeah. that's partly why 
but but also the, the European Union and especially the UK are, are on hard times at the moment. So outside yes. investment is it's seemingly very welcome. But but but, but it's, isn't it remarkable that that you don't see politicians talking about this? That in all of this debate, nobody's asking. Nobody's asking Andy Burnham, for example, what do you think about this? Nobody's asking Manchester City Council, is this a problem here? Are you worried about both of the city's clubs being owned by abusive autocrats? What does that say about the reputation of your city? What what is your what are your football clubs now doing? These two very proud clubs, like and and how does that impact on the city? Nobody's asking the Prime Minister, nobody's asking Starmer. And 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 it, it is remarkable given how politicized the game is. That, that these people are just sort of sitting by and watching this all yeah. unfold. I'm, I'm, I'm surprised and not surprised by Andy Burnham. He's, he's obviously of, of the centre-left, historically, as a politician, and you'd think he'd be concerned about some of these issues. At the same time, Abu Dhabi has piled money into Manchester. The, the downstream impact is higher rents, so it's, it's not good for everyone, but, but the developer community has done well there. Burnham himself is an Everton fan. I'm pretty sure he's never actually mentioned some of the extremely dodgy Russian links that Everton have had in recent years, including right. including £30 million from USM, which is Usmanov's company. Yep. Just going into the accounts. Very interesting, that one. So politicians are conflicted too, and, and not enough pressure is put on them. And of course, the thing I, I sense, and I don't have any scientific data about this, is that I think local Manchester United fans, match-going fans, are probably pretty concerned. So, mm. you know, I, I give a couple of data points here. There's an athletic poll that said only 17% of United fans were in favour of the Qatari Prince. Now, athletic is subscribed to by people who are happy to read deep, long, 4,000-word articles on an issue. And so that's skewed, that data, mm. for sure. And then on Twitter, my sense is that there's just a huge... If I run a Twitter poll tomorrow, despite the nature of this podcast, I think 90% of people would click in favor of the Qatari bit. Mm. I'm going to guess something like that. And, and so you've got these two communities. And, and Manchester United, actually, if you think about the fan base, billion people worldwide, so they claim, most of them are never going to go to a match ever. Yeah. And that's yeah. what sponsors look at. Yeah. And so United, success, inevitable success, as long as the club's not run terribly with all that money, Plus sponsors equals a kind of happy marriage for some people. Yeah, I, I, I get it. You know, I, I think we have also created a situation in the last decade where it has been amply demonstrated that tremendous wealth is the only way to, to get success. Manchester City, I think, are, are, are a huge, and PSG, of course, hugely significant in that, in, in that way. Whereas previously, when, when you and I would have been you know, younger, there were all sorts of teams who would, who would be competing at the top table. That doesn't exist anymore. The, the centralization, the concentration of wealth has, has meant that there is a, a top table and the Gulf money has just catalyzed that, that process. I mean, that, I think that process was underway anyway. It's not that, it's not that they, they created it, but they certainly have exacerbated it and probably, yeah. co- probably COVID too. You know? Well, I, I mean, I think it's fair to say that Paris Saint-Germain used the transfer market to not just to spend huge amounts of money, but to spend so much money that it skewed the market for everybody else. Right. And, and this is an argument that Javier Tevez, the La Liga president, says. And, yeah. my, and my fear that if the Qatari bid wins United and they do spend lots of money, that it will accelerate calls from Rome, Madrid and Barcelona and others to bring up Super League once yeah. again, which has never gone away. 
right? Yeah. And yeah. and it, that dynamic is kind of, I mean, it's deeply concerning for football that we get rid of the promotion relegation system, even in the, the latest white paper, which says 60 to 80 clubs in a league system, that's still locked in. There's still guaranteed participation for the founders. So, it, you know, I think these are dangerous times. And so I, I appreciate the insight into this. I'm, I'm less, I think, I think we're all getting educated much better, but I'm less certain about our ability as a football community to do anything about it. No, I, I, I agree with you. I mean, I, I, I don't think we, we have the, the framework to deal with this stuff. There is a complete absence of, of regulation. Uh, but, but that is why, you know, I always get asked on these podcasts or, or interviews, what's the interviews, what, what can fans do? And, <laughs> and you can answer, you know, there's an answer to that. But, but the point is that it's way beyond that. You know, it, it needs government intervention. If these are, if these are unique institutions and they, they deserve special protection and we just need to, we need to really consider what that is. And until that happens, I, I, I share your, I share your pessimism. All right. On that note, thank you very much, Nick. I really appreciate your time and, and the work you're doing. And well, if the big goes heads, we'll, we'll have you back on to, to think about what the future might hold there, but uh, I really appreciate it. Okay. I hope, hope not to be back on for, for that at least. Thanks for, thanks for thanks having me last time.